Okay, turn with me to Philemon, or Philemon, as it would be pronounced in the Greek, but this is a short little letter that is different than any other letter in the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter. It's a personal letter. So you have Ephesians, it's written to the, to the saints at Ephesus. You have one to Titus, or to Timothy, um, but it was a still for the church. It was a pastoral letter that was giving instruction on how the church ought to be uh, structured, put together, how to correct things. Um, so there's all kinds of different uh, topics that address the whole church. But this one, the book of Philemon, it's a personal letter that Paul writes. And I am so glad that it is there for us to read because it gives us a lot of practical instruction. Paul is writing around 62 AD. He's writing during his first imprisonment. And we'll see that right in the opening line of this uh, this book, personal letter written to a friend, a co-laborer in the ministry by the name of Philemon. The subject of the letter is going to exhort this friend, Philemon, uh, to receive a runaway slave of his who had done something to him before he left the house and caused him some grief and some sorrow. But he's going to exhort him, receive him back. He's now a follower of Jesus Christ. He is your brother. You know, slavery... Um, in the Roman Empire was quite common in the first century A.D. Some 60 million slaves, it's estimated, um, existed or were living in that state. And so it was, in some cases, it could be a, a thing where you would sell yourself into slavery. Um, in other cases, it was you were taken as a slave. Um, in some cases, maybe it was a good situation that you were able to find yourself in. But in many, many, many cases... Um, it was terrible. I mean, they beat you. They could take your life. They could kill you. They could maim you. And it was no big deal. That's different than what the, the Old Testament law of Moses instructed and gave guidance on. But this is a Roman Empire. It's, you know, it's outside of, it's outside of um, the Word of God. And yet, as you read through Philemon, there is generally an objection of why didn't he call for an an abolishment of slavery. Why didn't he just call for an abolishment of slavery? Well, he's, you're not going to find that he does that. Um, there is a place in one of his other letters where he forbids slave trade. He says this is not right, that he calls it a sin. And th this is the truth. This is the truth. And I don't think many people know this. But if the church in America in her early days would have stood up and would have followed the word of God, and had the courage to stand against this wave of slavery that was um, uh, forbidden in the New Testament of capturing people, kidnapping, and then selling them. If the church would have stood up and could have resisted this, this wouldn't have gone. But what often happened inside the church um, was that this was allowed, encouraged, and um, even protected in the sermons that were preached. But you know, God did something. It's kind of like righteous leaven. We know of unrighteous leaven, right? You do something evil and it's going to uh, produce some negative impact in your life. But if we think about this, what Paul does do is he calls people together to love one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free. He took all of those distinctions away and said we are one in Christ. 
And that love that we are to have for each other became the righteous leaven inserted into society that given the time, it grew up and was able to overturn. It is Christians who led the abolish, um, abolition of slavery. You can read it on your own, but I think there's so much that's being talked about. If false information, not true. So, you know, if you want to study this, you're going to have to go somewhere other than TikTok to find out what actually took place in history, what was going on in the church, and what the Bible has to say. But what we're going to see him do is he's going to call for slave owners throughout the, uh, the New Testament to love and to treat well, knowing that you've got to give an account for how you treat them. He does something else that to our modern ears doesn't sound like anything significant at all, but that is he taught slaves and gave them moral and biblical instruction. And you may look, well, yeah. But no, it wasn't, yeah, in the first century A.D. You didn't let your slaves be taught and instructed on matters of morality. You kept them in the dark, and yet the New Testament freely and openly preached and called everybody together, says that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, says there's neither male nor female. Now, the institution still existed, but these are all the things that do exist in Scripture, and this is certainly worthy of a much deeper uh, take, but there's just not time in this study to do that. I feel led to go in a different direction with this, and we will do that. So the title of the study is Becoming Useful, and that's going to be a, a play on the name Onesimus. So let's begin reading here at verse 1, and this is just your typical greeting. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, probably his wife, Archippus, very well, maybe his son, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So they had a house church. Probably on average, it's estimated the average size house church in the first century AD was about 20 people. And so it was intimate, you knew everybody, and um, lots of uh, opportunity to care for each other and have accountability. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. So let's stop right there for a moment. We'll pick up these next verses in just a moment. But I I just want to look at that opening phrase. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Prisoner of Christ Jesus? What does that even mean? Why, why would he say he's a prisoner? Well, he is writing from a Roman jail cell, and he is in chains, right? So he's in a Roman prison, but as he writes, he says that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And there's a truth in here that if we can grab hold of it and we can walk this out for the rest of our life, there will be such freedom, there will be such liberty, there will be such hope, in your heart and your life when you go through difficult circumstances. He is in a difficult circumstance. He is in jail. His life is on the line. Read the book of Philippians. And he, when he writes that, he says, I don't know whether I'm going to get out or whether I'm going to be, you know, have my head chopped off. I don't know. I think I'm going to get out, but I might, I might have my head chopped off. And so he wasn't certain what the outcome. This was real imprisonment. And yet he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of, you know, those guys who ended up plotting this and they did this evil thing to me, they threw me in jail or some corrupt governmental system. He doesn't say any of those things. 
He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, which means this. He does not believe that his life is being dictated by the corrupt intentions of individuals or some rogue government that's out of control. He believes that even when he's in chains in a Roman prison, that his God sits upon the throne of his life and he can say, my chains, my imprisonment is in Christ Jesus. You don't hear victimhood here going on here. Was he a victim? He absolutely was. But you don't hear him living in that mentality. Sure, you can acknowledge that this this is what happened to me, and these are the people that did it. But he steps back and says, my God is bigger than that. My God is on the throne. He is the omnipotent, sovereign one, all-powerful, in complete control. So for you and your circumstances and the Warner family and our circumstances, we can all step back and say, the Lord is in control of my life. There might be things that are sinful that happen to me. There may be things that are unfair and unjust. They're not right. But you know what? Don't let that become how you think and live your life. you gotta, you got to step back from that. And you've got to say, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He will use this for his purposes. He's got a plan. I don't know what it is. But I am not simply a victim of circumstances. Jeff and Christina have been here for um, a few days. And they were at our house. And we had the elders over at our house yesterday in just a time of fellowship. And we were talking about an event that happened in Russia that I think really beautifully illustrates what I'm talking about. So... They headed over in about 92, 91, 92, into Russia. And in late 80s, early 90s, Russia was opening up for mission work. And many missionary agencies, many missionaries, many churches flooded in. And they went and they took the gospel and thousands of churches were planted. But in 1997, as the government began to see what was going on, they constructed a law Um, some legislation that was going to make it nearly impossible for any of those churches that had recently come in to stand. And what they said, among many other things, was you had to have had been on the ground for at least 50 years. Well, this is 1997. Early 90s is when it opened up and most of these churches were being planted. How could they possibly accomplish that? But you know what? God's a little smarter than government. God knows what's going to happen. And so he was on the work and he was on the move. In the 1920s, the early 1920s, there was a man that was faithfully pastoring, but he was being thrown into jail, and he was, uh, it was in the newspaper. He had his you know, documents from incarceration, court records that all put a date on when this happened. He's, 1997, he's no longer there, but his grandson is pastoring the church, and another grandson's a lawyer. They're both believers. And they see this law, and they begin to look, and they come up with a plan. And what they did was if uh, evangelical churches could agree to a biblical doctrinal statement that they would welcome them in into their network of churches. So 1,400, was it 1,400? About 1,400 churches were able to come and find a legal standing because grandpa was in jail in the 1920s. Do you think that was going through his mind when he was sitting in jail? I mean, we don't know, right? But it's not hard to imagine a moment of like, Lord, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm loving your people. And I'm sitting here in jail. I don't know what good this is doing. I'd be doing so much more good on the outside. Is that true? Did he do more good on the outside or on the inside of jails? 1,400 churches 
able to be brought in because he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. You don't know what the Lord is doing in your difficult circumstances right now, but I do know this. If you will embrace it and you will turn your life over to the Lord and say, here I am, Lord, use me, even in their sin against me, you will see your sovereign, omnipotent God do something for his glory and his honor. Can I say it? Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off yourself. Oh, I've got to take care of myself. No, you don't. That's the Lord's responsibility. You know, the more you focus on yourself, the more depressed you're going to become. That's true. Get your eyes on the Lord and what he can do. And, and watch how he'll step up. Well, as you keep on reading, uh, Philemon um, is the one that, we're, that the letter is addressed to. His name means affectionate one. Which is interesting because Paul's going to call him to have affection towards another guy by the name of Onesimus, the runaway slave. Onesimus' name, ironically, means useful. <laughs> well, that wasn't, he didn't live up to that name, did he? He was not useful. He actually was a, a, a source of pain and hurt in Philemon's life. But watch how the Lord is going to work this out and how these names of affectionate one and useful come to be a part of this message. In verse 2, we see that there's that house church with his uh, son and his wife, is who we think the Aphia and Archippus are. Um, and he just says, I'm committed to prayer. He might be in chains, but he was going to pray. And again, I think you could say the same thing about Paul. Was, would, would you rather have Paul out of prison or in prison? Because in prison, he did a lot of writing. And we read these pastoral or these uh, epi uh, prison epistles. And so God is at work in his life. Now, verses 5 through 7, let's pick up. We'll see Philemon's love for the church. And he says, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, and, share, and the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. This is called, writing it, write it off to the margins, verses 5 through 7, Paul is buttering him up. He is, he's just saying, hey, affectionate one, Philemon, you're, we, we know of you, not just by your name, but by your actions. You love the church. You have the church in your house. You refresh people. You do good things for them. The God is working through your life. And, um, man, we just we hear of this and we rejoice in this. Um, we are so thankful for your love. How did Philemon refresh the church? Well, probably through the word of God. Probably through simply opening his house and showing hospitality. Come on in. Through a listening ear. Through praying for them. And so this is how we can all refresh one another. In essence, he is saying, you are known for your affection for the, uh, among the family of God, and I'm going to ask you to show some affection one more time. But we don't, he doesn't know that yet. You can imagine him reading this, and if Aphia was his wife, they're sitting and reading this letter, and like, oh, Paul, thanks. Oh, geez, Paul, that's really nice of you to say those things about me. And wow, Aphia, I meant... Look at this. It's what the Lord is doing in our life is being, being realized in other places. This is so exciting. And so we keep on moving into verse 8 where there's going to be this call for reconciliation. 
Um, and so he, he doesn't know it yet. He's just being buttered up. But in verses 8 and 9, Paul says the tone changes abruptly. Therefore, you love everybody. Therefore, I thought I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting. Yet for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I did not like what I discovered here in verse 9, actually, if I could be honest for a second. I'm like, aged, what is aged? They said it was mid-50s to early 60s is where it begins. I am 55, so I am a biblically aged man at this point in my life. So I learned, I learned that this, uh, this weekend. I'm an old guy. Um, but look what he does here. He exhorts from love, not power. Is there ever a place to exhort from power? Uh, read Corinthians, yes. Read Galatians, yes. But you, 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 do, you do know this, that exhorting somebody to walk in love, rather than to walk it out because of love, their own choice, rather than you putting the apostle kind of stamp on it and say, you must do this, is always going to cause for more growth and maturity in that person's life when you call them to walk it out in love. You know, sometimes you'd just rather have somebody say, just tell me what to do. Just, just say, do it, and I'll do it. And like, no, I want you to do the right thing. I want you to pray about it. I want you to go and do the right thing. And, and the reason I think sometimes we want to just be told what to do is because love goes so much deeper and further than a commandment from another person. I mean, love just permeates, doesn't it? What are, what are the edges of walking in love towards somebody? You can't measure that, but you can measure the edges of, well, Paul said, I must welcome him back. I must say, greet him, and then just whatever happens after that happens. And I tell you what, I'm not doing anything more than that. And that's what happens when you're following a, kind of a, a heavy-handed, bold commandment. But when it's walk in love, you can't find those edges. And so this is why he's doing this. Sometimes you have to do that. But the, the higher good is to exhort and call people to love. I want you to think about that in your relationships with one another. Mom and dad with the kids, husband and wife, roommates, brothers and sisters in Christ. Call people to walk in love. Don't just drop the hammer. There, there might be a time where you have to do that. But what you really need to do is you need to call them to walk in love. It's, it, it turns out so much better. So, verse 10, uh, Paul, next point, he is an advocate. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I've begotten while in my chains. Now, in the Greek construction of verse 10, Onesimus' name comes at the very end, which I think is intentional because he's trying to say as much as he can before he gets to that painful experience that Onesimus, actually, that Philemon had with Onesimus. So he's like, where's he going with this? He could make a command, but he's rather asking me to walk in love. And so he's asking for me to do this thing for Onesimus. How does, what is Paul doing with Onesimus? He says, whom I've begotten while in my chains. So it's, I, I don't know. Did Onesimus end up in jail and the Lord lead him? Uh, uh, and Paul lead him to the Lord and then he got out and then Paul cared for him? Or was Onesimus just in Rome and he got connected with other believers and found out, hey, here's this guy Paul, who's good friends with his former master. We don't know what this scenario was, but Paul's advocating for him. 
And he says he's come to know the Lord. Onesimus, under Roman law, could have at worst been put to death and really at the least could have had a branded F put on his forehead for fugitive. But Paul's going to ask for mercy and grace to be shown to this new brother named Onesimus, whose name again means what? Useful. And I'm sure that 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 had to be every time you know, Philemon heard that name. He goes, well, useful, as if, you know, I mean, he was useful. So he's calling out, and he's saying he's come to the Lord. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. So you can run, but you can't hide from the Lord. And that's, that's what Onesimus found out. He was in a house where there was a church. How many, and I don't know what the answer is, but how many Homes in the, in the world in 60 A.D. had a church in it. I mean, you're talking hundreds maybe. Not, not many. And yet he happens to be in one of those homes where he hears the gospel being preached. And, you know, Philemon, you know, praising the Lord and giving Bible studies and Apphia and, you know, Archippus. He's like, I'm sick of all this stuff. i got to get out of here. And he runs away, but he ends up running right into the arms of the Lord. You can run from the Lord, it's just you're not very effective at it because he is everywhere. No matter where you run, the Lord is there. Ask Jonah that question. When you get to heaven, ask Jonah. Just say, hey, Jonah, is it true you can't run from the Lord? Don't ask him that. He'll probably get mad at you. But, but you know, you can't run. The Lord is going to track you down. Now, I don't know how that applies to your life. Maybe you're running from the Lord and not wanting to be obedient to him. And yield your life over to him. Your mom has preached the gospel. Your friends have preached the gospel. Everywhere you turn, somebody's preaching the gospel and calling you to put your faith and trust in the Lord. And you keep running away. And yet here you are sitting in another message, hearing another Bible study on giving your life to the Lord. It's not because the Lord is desperate and wringing his hands and says, oh, I hope this time, I mean, I really need him to be or her to be complete. No, God's complete in himself. But he loves you and he wants you to be a part of this salvation. Maybe you're running from a calling. That's really hard to do. But he ran right into the arms of, of the Lord. Look at verses 11 through 14. Uh, he's going to end up living up to his name finally. Um, speaking of Philemon, he says, Who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains. Because in that day, if you are in prison, somebody had to bring you food and water and all these elements and clean clothes. So Onesimus is, is doing this with him. And he's saying, but he's actually doing it on your behalf. In my chains for the gospel. But without, verse 14, but without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. So I, want, I hope you're going to do this. What he says, though, is this guy has finally lived up to his name. Onesimus is finally profitable. It's a different Greek word, but it's the same, you know, it's a synonym. It's the same idea. He has not been profitable, but now he is. For the gospel, for me, he's been caring for me. Now Philemon and Paul had a, 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 you know, a meaningful relationship. They were brothers in the Lord. And I'm sure it would have pained Philemon to think about his good friend sitting in jail and not being taken care of. I wonder if Philemon even prayed with Aphia, Oh, Lord, look out for our brother Paul. You know that he's in jail. Send somebody, Lord, 
we don't have it recorded, but it's not hard to imagine a man like that praying a prayer like that. And who did he send? Mr. Useful, who was totally unprofitable. Would have been the last guy that he would have expected. Can you, can you imagine the emotions that are swirling in his heart and in his mind? And he says, I want you to receive him. Proslambano is the word. Proslambano. And listen to this definition. To receive to oneself. It's very personal. To oneself. Admit to one's society. Think of the church in his home. And fellowship. Receive and treat with kindness. So again, the, you know, the commandment of love. Again, where are the edges of that? Receive is this, this word is, is, is kind of goes in a lot of different directions. And it's not just simply when he gets to the house, you know, be, you know, say hello to him and greet him and see where it goes from here. No, Paul's like, no, I want you to receive him. And I want you to admit him into fellowship. I want you to receive him into your house. And I want you to treat him with kindness. That's what I'm asking. But wait a minute, Paul. He's done me harm. He's done me damage. Well, this happens, doesn't it, in life? Happened to the patriarch Joseph, and yet we know how he treated his brothers. He showed kindness and love to them, and he received them. He welcomed them into the society of Egypt. He cared for them. He showed kindness. He showed kindness, and he gave them land to graze in, and gave them food. And so we should be living up to our name, which is not Onesimus, it's Christian. We're Christians. And we love like Jesus loves, and we receive and we forgive like Jesus forgives. Look at verses 15 and 16 at the unexpected outcome. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. I'm sure that's the last thing on his mind. Receive him and fellowship with him like forever, for eternity? No, I don't. that's not why I want that guy. I'm not thinking that. He says, no longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Philemon must have been swallowing hard and working through the emotions as he hears his good friend saying, receive him as a brother. God did something you didn't expect. And maybe that's what's going on in your life. Maybe somebody did you much damage. They went out, and then when they went out, they went and they found the Lord. And if you're honest, and I won't ask you to raise your hand, maybe it was like, you've got to be kidding me. I don't want them to have heaven. I want them to have hell. I don't want them to have a blessing. I want them to pay for all that they've done. And now they're going to come to Jesus and they're going to be forgiven. I'm not happy about that. But we ought to be happy about that. We ought to rejoice in what God has done and how he's changed them in their life. And he says, so he's departed that he, you might receive him forever. It is true in this life, some relationships where this has happened may never get back to that same place they were before. I'll acknowledge that. But in heaven, for all of eternity, that's going to be your brother or sister. And the Lord will use that reconciliation, I believe, as a trophy of his grace and work in our life. Verse 17. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, probably ripped him off for the journey to Rome when he left him, I imagine. Put that on my account. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. You refresh everybody's heart. Now you can refresh mine by receiving him. 
Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand and I will repay, not to mention that you owe me even your own self besides. So if whatever it costs you, I'll take care of it if you really feel like you want to charge me. I mean, you wouldn't even be saved if it wasn't for me. So you do what you want to do, but if I need to pay, I will. And he closes. But meanwhile, I'll also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, who forsakes him, Luke, my beloved, and my, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Boy, he was going to need the grace of God to walk this out, wasn't he? Some lessons for us. We've got an advocate. Just as Paul was an advocate for Onesimus, you have an advocate. And his name is Jesus. And he advocates for you in the presence of the Lord, saying, this one, she, he has been redeemed by my blood, and they have place and standing and so the Lord is our advocate. He argues. He fights for you. I mean, you know, not like the Father saying, I don't think so. It was all the Father's plan to redeem us. But he is your advocate. He's the one that's, as the accuser of the brethren comes in, he is advocating for you. And we are to be like Paul in trying to be peacemakers and to be an advocate. You know, Paul had to put his, his name out there when he advocates for a runaway slave who had done much harm. Do I really want to be associated with this guy? Do I want to use my equity and my credibility for this guy? And look how quick Paul was to do that. But maybe the application is more like Philemon. You've got to receive somebody's hurt you. Or maybe it's more like Onesimus. You have not been one that was wanting to come after the Lord, but you see him chasing you down today. Come to him. Or maybe you have come to him, but you've not been living up to your name. You've not been useful in the kingdom of God because you've been so focused upon your own thing. Why don't you decide today that you're going to be useful to your master, Jesus, who is also your advocate? We're going to pray now. We're going to have this song that's going to allow us a chance just to respond to the Lord in these things that we just talked about. And then um, after this song, the, in the second song, the ushers are going to come and pass out the communion elements. But let's first just respond to the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that you're kind and you're gracious to us. You're loving. And you chased us down. And you chased us down with the advocate, your son. And we are grateful, Lord. In that day, in that hour, that night or morning, whenever it was, when you came to us and you called us to yourself, thank you for the redemption. Thank you that you have forgiven us. I want you to respond to the Lord this morning as he ministers to you. Maybe it is, you need to just, you need to kneel before the Lord. You need to say, I am done running from you. I'm done. I'm gonna, I am going to repent and turn to you today and ask the Lord to forgive you of your sin. And he will. He will be an advocate for you. But maybe it's that person that you've been walking around with who's done you so much harm and they've even come and tried to make it right with you. But you've rejected it over and over again. Listen, 
The commandment is there. You must forgive. But isn't it better just to hear the voice of the Lord saying, let love grab your heart this morning. And Lord Jesus, can, he, can, he can throw his weight around if he needs to. But he's asking you to forgive that person. And he is the model. Maybe you've just been a complete time waster with your gifts and your talents. You've not been useful for the kingdom. But you can hear Jesus asking, don't we want to stand before the Lord and hear him say, thanks for being useful in your time on earth for my kingdom. Well done. 